don't know if you've ever read the book of Jeremiah. It's one of the longest books in the Old Testament. Um, we're just going to look at this, this particular episode in chapter 32 that we, we've just read about. Uh, biblical names seem to have come back into fashion, I think. I don't know if they've ever gone out of fashion. Um, there are lots of uh, names that I didn't even realize. I've got a grandson called Ethan, and I didn't realize that that's actually a biblical name. I should have known that, shouldn't I? Uh, but I only discovered that recently. Uh, but there are lots of names. People who don't know the Bible or read the Bible, they still choose Bible names for their children, which is interesting. People who never go to church and have never opened a Bible, for example, know what it means to be a Daniel in the lion's den, don't they? That kind of story has entered into our vocabulary, into our, into our consciousness, even if we long ago stopped going to church. How about Jeremiah? If I were to say to you uh, tonight, don't be a Jeremiah, would you understand what I meant by that? Jeremiah is your archetypal prophet of doom. He's a real wet blanket, just like Eeyore the donkey in Winnie the Pooh or Puddleglum uh, the Marsh Wiggle in Narnia. I don't know, you probably know both those characters. I don't know which is your favorite miserable person, Eeyore or Puddleglum. Well, Jeremiah's got that kind of reputation. He's, uh, to be a Jeremiah is, in modern kind of parlance is to be a killjoy, a pessimist, a wet blanket, always putting a dampener on things. So, so dare to be a Daniel by all means, but don't be such a Jeremiah. Such is the popular uh, understanding of this man, but it's a misunderstanding. In fact, it's, it's a scandal, it's a slander. And all I need to do tonight to prove that to you is to take you into this, this chapter, Jeremiah chapter 32. It's uh, 587 BC, and it's five minutes to midnight for Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar's armies are on the doorstep, and in a matter of months, Jerusalem will be destroyed, and Jeremiah is in jail for treason. Uh, he's public enemy, number one. He's been telling people that it's going to happen and that there's no way they're going to be able to escape it. And so they put him in jail. It's the worst of times for the people. It's the worst of times for Jeremiah. And into this hopeless situation, God speaks a message of hope. And I want you to see three things tonight. I want you to see how he does that. And then I want you to see what he actually says. And then I want us to think about how we apply that to ourselves. So those are the three points. Um, how, what, and so what. Those are the three things I want us to think about. So first of all, notice, notice how God addresses this situation. Notice how God speaks into this situation. If you look at verses 6 and following, verses 6 to 8, uh, Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me. So God's word came to Jeremiah, and so too did his pesky cousin, Hannibal. See why he's a pesky cousin in a moment. What a coincidence. <laughs> well, no, it's not a coincidence. There are no such things as coincidence. This is, this is the providence of God. The word of God came to him, and his cousin came to him. 
Those two things happened. The Puritan preacher John Flavel says, the revealed will of God is either manifested to us in his word or in his works. God speaks to us through his, his, his word, as we'll see, but he also speaks to us in his providence. So listen to what, what God says to Jeremiah here, because it's a very specific word from the Lord, isn't it? Look at verse 7. The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going uh, to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth. As, as Jeremiah is kind of languishing in jail, the, the thought comes into his mind to buy a piece of real estate in his hometown of Anathoth. That's his hometown. What a crazy idea. It's, it's like driving up the southern outlet. And have you seen those houses on the southern outlet, you know, with red crosses on, on them? Have you not noticed that? You're very good drivers, probably. You're not put your concentration on the road, but there are a number of houses there on the southern outlet. They've got red crosses outside them. It's not because the plague has come uh, to Denern. It's because those houses are under a compulsory purchase order because they're going to somehow or other, and this is going to be a miraculous thing, but they're going to, they're going to, they're going to widen the southern outlet. How are they going to do that? That'll be a, a miracle of engineering, won't it? But imagine buying a house on the southern outlet that's under a compulsory purchase order. That doesn't make any sense, does it? How can that possibly be the word of God to Jeremiah? What persuaded him that, that that was God's word? That he should go to his hometown and, and buy a plot of land there in Anathoth? But look at verse 8. And sure enough, he says, just as God sa had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me. God said he would come, and sure enough, he came while I was in jail. And said, buy my field in Anathoth, in the territory of Benjamin, for you have the legal right to keep it in the family. Buy it, take it over. And Jeremiah says there, I just knew that this was the word of the Lord. How did he know that? How do people know when God is speaking to them? How do you know? How does anyone know when, when God is, is speaking to them? Let's just think about that for a moment. How did Jeremiah know? Well, he's an Old Testament prophet, of course, isn't he? So he's got a hotline to heaven. <laughs> He's got an advantage over the rest of us. It's his job to know. The word of the Lord came to me. That's the kind of formula you find throughout the, uh, the books of the prophets. A prophet is God's mouthpiece to his people. It goes with his calling. And of course, as I say, yeah, that gives him an advantage over the rest of us because you and I are not Old Testament prophets. We don't have a hotline to heaven he was used to receiving messages from God directly in a way that you and I are not. But how did he know for sure that God was speaking to him? It's an important question. People have written books about this. Uh, guidance and the voice of God. How do you discern the voice of God? It's a subject that people are interested in. Guidance and the voice of God. How, how, do, you, how do you know? How do you discern the voice of God? Was it the craziness of it? You know, I mean, some people have done some bizarre things in the name of the Lord, and, and the, the, the more bizarre, the more likely they are to think this is God. Isn't that right? The, the, if you know uh, the history of the church, you know some people have done some ridiculous things because they believed that God was speaking to them. It must be God because it's so odd. Isn't, is that what this is? I mean, who in their right mind would buy a piece of land just three miles northeast of Jerusalem with a whole battalion of Babylonian soldiers parked on it, with no chance of ever getting vacant possession in the foreseeable future. 
like buying a business in uh, Kabul with the Taliban, Taliban taking power. Who in their right mind would do that? Only God would ask you to do a crazy thing like that, wouldn't he? Now, sometimes God does ask us to do crazy things. So it must be God. Is that true? How did Jeremiah know that God wanted him to do this? Was it the craziness of it? Or was it simply the coincidence, you know, that uh, his cousin turned up the day after the thought had popped into his head? It's an amazing coincidence, really, isn't it? One day the idea comes to him, the next day the opportunity presents itself. This must be a God thing. Uncle Shalom's lad, Hanamel, turns up out of, the, out of the blue. But how can you know for sure? What should you do in a situation like that? When you think God is speaking to you, when, when things... I'm in a situation right now where I'm talking to someone, and it's an amazing, some amazing coincidences have cropped up in the, in the course of that conversation. It's to do with the selection process that we're in at the moment. And I have to ask myself, well, what, is, what is God saying to us? What is God saying to me in this situation? It, it's, 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 it's too much of a coincidence to ignore. You know, how, do we, how do we discern God's voice in situations like this? When you think God is speaking to you, and it seems crazy, and it's this, there's so many things that are intersecting, coincidences that are happening, how do you know that this is the voice of God? Well, there's only one way to know, of course. And that is to check it out by the written word. Does the written word of God have any bearing on this situation? Well, look at the passage. Look at verse 7. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative it is your right and duty to buy it. Well, who says so? Is that scriptural? Is that biblical? Yes, it is. You can check it out in uh, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25. It's written in the book of the law. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. That's what the Bible says. Now, I'm sure Hanamel is just looking out for himself. He's pulling a fast one on uh, Jeremiah, I think. He's taking advantage of, of uh, Jeremiah's religious sensibilities. Now, that cousin of mine, you know, he's a religious. In that case, he's got his head in the clouds. This is my chance to make money on a completely useless piece of real estate. But by selling it from under the hooves of the Babylonian cavalry. Come on, Jeremiah. You know your Bible, don't you? You know what Leviticus says. You're a prophet. You're a man of God, aren't you? Do your duty. Is that what's happening here? And, and Jeremiah does what the scriptures tell him to do. God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths, isn't it? And so Jeremiah actually does what the Bible says he should do. He does the right thing, even though it's to no advantage for him. He buys that plot of land just as God's word says he should. And that's where it gets really interesting. George Muller says, if our circumstances find us in God, we will find God in our circumstances. And something like that happens here for Jeremiah. If, if our circumstances find us in God, well, here's Jeremiah in prison. Here's his cousin coming to try and sell him a useless piece of real estate. Uh, but the Bible tells him that he should, should buy it because that's what the law requires. 
and he's a godly man, and he wants to do what God says. And if our circumstances find us in God, we will find God in our circumstances. And that's what happens here, you see. Because God uses Jeremiah's obedience to his written word to bring a message of hope to the world. So we've seen how God speaks into our lives. Through his word and through his works. But now let's, let's look more specifically at, at what God actually says. What is this message of hope? What does God say in this situation? What kind of a word is this? Well, look at me. Look at it with me in verses 13 to 15. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Uh, there's a story told about two rabbis in a concentration camp during World War II who went to the gas chamber arguing about an obscure point of Hebrew grammar. Bizarre, isn't it? But what a statement of hope. It takes a special kind of person with a special kind of vision to go to the gas chambers that way. When he once asked, I think it was John Wesley, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? He said, I'd just get up and mow the lawn. What's the words to that effect? I can't remember exactly what he said. And here is Jeremiah in prison with the enemy at the gate. His world is collapsing around him. And what does he do? He buys a field. Hardly the right time to go into real estate with the bottom falling out of the market to buy land that's overrun by the world's conqueror, and then to take elaborate care of the title deeds, it's a, it's a striking statement of hope for the future, isn't it? Why would you do that if you didn't have hope for the future? Why would you go into the gas chambers arguing about Hebrew grammar if you didn't have a hope beyond this world, beyond this life? Jeremiah knows that God is going to bring his people back to their inheritance. How does he know that? Because God has said. God has promised that. God has made a covenant with his people. And, and Jeremiah knows that God always keeps his word. And God will bring his people back to the, the land that he promised to their forefathers. Babylon will lay waste to that piece of land, but God still holds the title deeds. And Jeremiah knows that. And one day that little parcel of land in Anathoth will be yielding its crops and pasturing flocks for the people of God once again. Even though everybody is saying, no, that's never going to happen. Jeremiah knows it will happen. Houses, fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. You see, the disaster that is about to befall them in which we, they cannot escape is not his final word. One day, on this very spot, it will be business as usual. And this is not whistling in the dark, hoping against hope for a brighter tomorrow. This is not Vera Lynn singing, they'll always be in England, even as the bombs were dropping on London. This is not some jingoistic, patriotic gesture on Jeremiah's part. It's faith. It's faith in the covenant promise of God 
See, biblical faith is profoundly realistic and painfully honest. Faith doesn't shut its eyes to reality. It doesn't bury its head ostrich-like in the sand. Jeremiah knows that Babylon will destroy Jerusalem and carry the people off into exile. He's been saying that all along, and people hate him for it. He's a lone voice. That's why he's in prison. The false prophets are telling the people what they want to hear, just as they do today. Peace, peace, where there is no peace. Don't listen to Jeremiah, they're saying. He's a traitor, he's a troublemaker. But Jeremiah knows that this disaster that is about to befall them, which they richly deserve, and which they cannot escape, is God's punishment for their apostasy and idolatry. But it's not God's final word to them. Can you see how Jeremiah's mind is working? Do you see the logic in this act of of faith that he performs, this is the land of promise. So I, I, I won't let it out of my family. And if I won't let it out of my family, I'm sure God won't let it out of his family. He's promised. This is the promised land. If I'm prepared to buy back a field that is forfeited, how much more will God buy back his people, redeem his people Israel? Not that they deserve it anymore. And Hanamel deserved this act of kindness. But if I put myself out for a relative, even a rascal like Hanamel, won't God do the same for us, sinners though we are? Won't he stand by his covenant and bring us back into the land that he promised to give us? Houses, fields, vineyards will again be bought in this land. And isn't this so relevant uh, to the world that we live in today? A world... With so many marks of God's judgment upon it. We were there yesterday uh, in, in the Grand Chancellor. If you heard Martin preach, because he's a preacher first and foremost, if you heard him preach Romans chapter 1 yesterday, you'll know. True. This is a world that is under the, the, the judgment of God. The wrath of God is being poured out on this world. Men and women are storing up for themselves wrath against the day of wrath. See, to talk about the end of the world is, is no longer the province of cranks and religious oddbods, people standing on street corners with sandwich boards. It's scientifically respectable now, isn't it, to talk about the end of the world? Uh, the prophets of doom in our day are, are not in the, the churches, they're in the universities and in the media and in parliament. This world, it's, it's a scary place to be right now, isn't it? The judgments of God are abroad in this world. What is our message in these apocalyptic times in which we live? What is our message? Is it a message of judgment? Well, yes, it is. Judgment is coming. We need to warn people of that. We need to remind people of that, that this is a moral universe. And the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Judgment is coming on this world, and our message is partly, that is part of our message, but the message that we have for our world is a message of hope, isn't it? In a hopeless world, it's so easy to forget, you see, amidst all the gloom and doom, that actually God holds the title deeds to our world. God holds the title deeds to this world. Whatever you think about climate, the climate catastrophe, and there's all sorts of 
considerations there. Whatever you think about these things, whatever you think about the pandemic, whatever you think about the possibility of a huge war between China and the rest of the world, whatever you think about these things, God's in charge. God is sovereign. God's plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. The meek will inherit the earth. Who are the meek? The mousy, spineless, <laughs> people with no opinion about anything. No, of course not. Who are the, the meek are those who have submitted to the lordship of Christ. That's what it means to be meek. We believe that uh, it's Jesus who is in charge of this universe. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he sent us out with the gospel to make disciples of all nations. Is that going to happen? Of course it's going to happen. It's got to happen, isn't it? Edward uh, Thurneson pictures what it might look like, you know, when the meek inherit the earth. He says, the world into which we shall enter at the return of Jesus Christ is not another world. It's this world. This heaven, this earth, both, however, passed away and renewed. It's these forests, these fields, these cities, these streets, these people that will be the scene of redemption. At present, they're battlefields. Don't we know it? At present, they're battlefields full of the strife and sorrow of the not yet accomplished consummation. Then they will be fields of victory, fields of harvest, where out of seed that was sown with tears, the everlasting sheaves will be reaped and brought home. Now, what, all, what is, so what? What does all this have to say to us? What are we to do with this, this message of hope? How are we to apply it to ourselves? Robert Moffat and his wife Mary were pioneer missionaries in South Africa, in Bechuanaland. They worked there for 10 years without a single convert. After that, uh, I can remember I can remember when I was a when you, when you get old like me, like me your, kind of, your short term memory goes and your long term memory kind of improves. <laughs> I can remember in school uh, going to the careers officer. We had a, a teacher who was in charge of giving advice about future careers. And I, I'm not a brilliant scholar or anything like that. I did fairly well in school and I can remember having to decide what to do at university and going to see the careers teacher. But in between uh, um, you know, my exam and, and going to see the careers officer, I, I was converted. I became a Christian. And I, and I felt that God's call was on my life to be a preacher of the gospel. And I remember saying that to the careers teacher. And he said to me, what a waste. <laughs> what a waste. No doubt these... The Moffats, their friends, would have said the same to them. They've been in South Africa, in Bechuana land, for 10 years, and they haven't seen anything happen. Not a single convert. And after they'd been there 10 years, they received a letter from one of their supporters in England. How can we support you? What can we send you? And Mary wrote back, send us a communion set. See what they're doing? They were buying a field, weren't they? In Bechuana land. Weren't they? They were buying a field in Bechuanaland while it was still in the hands of the enemy. Not a single convert to show for 10 years of work. And how easy it would have been to give up and to walk away. 
and to think, well, there's better things I could do with my life. <laughs> but when the communion set arrived, there was a small church waiting for him. See, and that's what Jeremiah is doing here. He's standing on the promises of God. He's investing in the future. He pays good money for that field in Anathoth. The proper legalities are observed. It's signed, sealed, and delivered, and the field that only a fool would buy changes hands. But is he a fool? Well, I think so. But he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. Isn't that right? So what about you? What are you doing with your life? What decisions are you making? Only one life you've got. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Are you buying into the future? I don't mean the short-term future. I mean the new heavens and the new earth. I don't think I've wasted my life, despite what my career teacher told me. I haven't seen amazing things happen, but I've seen people converted. And I know that there'll be people in eternity that, I w that will greet me, and I will greet them, because I preach the gospel to them. <laughs> See, that's what Jeremiah was doing. He was buying his field. What about you? Are you trusting in the promises of God for your future? It looks so foolish, doesn't it? Being a Christian, witnessing to Jesus. Pointing people to the gospel, talking about eternity and judgment. It looks so foolish. Let me just apply it a little bit more specifically. Take, for example, the doctrine of, of justification by faith. Let's get a bit doctrinal, because we're Presbyterians. It's, what is the justification by faith? It's the heart of the gospel. It is the gospel, in fact. What is justification by faith? It's the future brought into the present, isn't it? It is the verdict of the last day made known now. That's too good to be true. You don't have to go through your life looking over your shoulder, wondering how it's going to turn out. What will God say about me on judgment day? You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder about that. Because if you believe in Jesus, then the verdict of the future, the verdict of the last day on your life is no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who are trusting in Jesus. God's final word on your life, if you're a believer, is not one of judgment. You're justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. It really means that. Do you believe that? I'm not asking you to justify yourself, because that's what people do. We justify ourselves. I'm not asking you, can you justify your, your actions and your behavior, because you're not going to be asked to do that. I'm asking you, are you justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross so that his righteousness is put to your account and your sin is put into his account? So it's just as if you had never sinned. And God views you in the beloved. He sees you as he looks at his own beloved son and accepts you as much as he accepts Jesus. You know that. Are you, are, you, are you living out of that reality? Have you bought your field? You see, is that how you greet each new day? Do you get up on Monday morning and you sing to yourself, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. 
My future is, bright, is as bright as the promises of God. No condemnation. Try that tomorrow morning. If you're trusting in Jesus, that's what you can say that. Now what about you know, your battle with sin? What about sanctification? What about holiness? The faith buys its field even when the enemy appears to have won the day. Isn't that right? Remember what Paul says in Romans 7, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Do you see what's happening? The enemy is, is camping out in his life. But he's bought his field, hasn't he? And he knows that sin will not have dominion over him. Satan will not have the final word in his life. Thanks be to God, he says, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm not fighting for victory if I'm a Christian. I'm fighting from victory. The battle's already been won. I bought my field. Oh yeah, the enemy's still there on the doorstep. And there's still sin in my life. But sin won't have the last word. And what about glorification? Justification, sanctification, glorification. What about the resurrection of the body? Do you believe in that? I'm amazed how many Christians sell themselves short of this, you know. Uh, our hope for the future is not the survival of the soul. It's the physical resurrection of our bodies. We're waiting for our Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, says Paul, who will transform our lowly bodies, our downward-dragging bodies, so that they will be like his glorious body. When, when John Owen, the great Puritan preacher and theologian, was dying, his friends came to see him. Still in the land of the living, they said? No, he said. I'm in the land of the dying. I'm going to the land of the living. Do you believe that? Is that your hope? Not to sit in a cloud and twang a harp, <laughs> but to be in the new heavens and the new earth where there's nothing to hurt or harm in all God's holy kingdom, where there's no sorrow or sin, where Satan is no more. Is that your hope? George Bernard Shaw, on his 90th birthday, he wasn't a believer. On his 90th birthday, he, he's reported to have said this, our conduct is influenced not so much by our experience as by our expectation. Think about that for a moment. It was probably an excuse. Uh, by all accounts, uh, he was a cantankerous old man. It was very difficult to live with. And probably someone had said to him, you know what, you, some, had said to him, you ought to know better at your age. He was 90. And this was his reply. Our conduct is influenced not so much by our experience. Yeah, I'm 90 years of age, so what? But what have I got to look forward to? <laughs> See, he had nothing to look forward to. He was an atheist. And so he had no reason to live well. Life was nearly over as far as he was concerned. But my friends, whether we live to be 90 or not, we have a future and a hope. And it's not a forlorn hope. 
It's a hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's sealed to us by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Someone has said, unsaved people have a present that is controlled by their past. But Christians have a present that is controlled by the future. Past is all forgotten. Satan's the one who digs up our past. God's already forgotten, thrown it into the sea. As Christians, we're not controlled by our past. We're controlled by our future, aren't we? And for us, the best by far is yet to be. The future is as bright as the promises of God. So in the summer of 587 BC, Jerusalem fell, the food ran out, the people were taken into captivity. But there was one man, at least, who knew that this disaster, bad as it was, was not God's final word. He owned a field, and he had the documents to prove it. So do we. Not written on a piece of paper in some lawyer's office, gathering dust, but written in time and space in human history by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We have a future and a hope in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, beautiful uh, picture of Jeremiah's trust in you and his faith in your covenant. And we, we know, Lord, that uh, though he lived in very different circumstances and lived in a very different world to ours in, in other ways, Lord, what he experienced, what he lived through, what he knew was just exactly the same kind of thing that we face today. We too live in a world that is under the judgment of God, a fallen, broken world. We know, Lord, that this world cannot be fixed by science or by politics. This world needs a redeemer, and there is a redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And Lord, we know that the great message that this world needs to hear is this message of hope. Is this message of hope concerning Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again for our justification. Help us, Lord, not to be ashamed of that gospel. Help us not to be afraid to share that gospel with all uh, that we possibly can. So much the more as we see the day approaching when he returns. We ask it in his name. Amen.